This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. So I'm Fiona McKinnon. Um, I'm the Deputy Editor at Australian Prescriber and I'm um, chairing this session. So first off, I just wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're meeting on, um, the Ngunnawal people, and acknowledge and respect their continuing culture and the contribution they've made to the life of this city and region. So I'd like to welcome you all to this session. We're going to have um, eight lightning talks, and the theme, the overarching theme is clinical innovations. So hopefully we're going to hear about some new approaches and new ideas to you know, some of the challenges that we face. Okay, so first up, I'd like to introduce Andrew Marson um, from MPS MedicineWise, and he's going to be talking about um, a new model for engaging specialists um, about their prescribing. Thank you. I was just saying to Fiona, um, after figuring out how to work the, um, the taps in the toilet, there should be a piece of cake going first. Um, so this is a story of how MPS MedicineWise tested whether one of our best established products, the practice review for general practitioners shown here, could be acceptable and useful for a new target audience, namely specialists and rheumatologists. And why would we do this? Well, to continue to join the dots within the healthcare system. So if you're not familiar with the, um, with the practice review, this is a product that we send out um, three times a year to GPs. It's produced with GPs for GPs. And it uh, provides the recipient with personalized uh, prescribing data or data around their um, ordering of tests. And the data comes from the Department of Human Services. And the data we use to tell a story about current practice and identify gaps in practice. And it's an opportunity for the person receiving it to reflect on their rates of prescribing or ordering of tests see how they've changed over time, and they get to compare their data confidentially with that of their peers. Um, and they get to reflect on this prescribing or ordering of tests in the context of a distillation of current best practice guidelines with practice points, and it's interspersed with tips, for example, on how they can best engage with multidisciplinary healthcare, making use of pharmacists or when to refer. And this product works because um, the manufacturer is designed with GPs for GPs. Um, the relationship, MPS Medicine Wise has been working with GPs for <clears throat> around 20 years now, so we feel we understand this audience well, and we've been refining this product iteratively over this time period to continue to make it fit for purpose. And GPs are used to receiving this kind of product with their own data in it. Um, and also the design methodology of the product is a secret of its success as well. It's a feed feedback and audit type product, and this has been shown externally and also within MPS to be successful in driving behavior change. So this all works really well when we're um, looking at conditions that are managed predominantly within primary care, and there are a lot of those. Um, but what happens when we look at a condition such as rheumatoid arthritis, which is managed predominantly, but not exclusively, by specialists, so there's still that role for primary care. So MPS Medicine Wise approached the Australian Rheumatology Association and asked them if they would um, agree to co-design a program with us, and this happened last year, and they, they agreed, and we, so we set about designing one also with um, Arthritis Australia, and you may well have received the Medicine Wise news that's already been sent, uh, published and was also informed by this collaboration. So, 
We set up um, expert working groups with um, stakeholders where we usually work with, including consumers, pharmacists, and GPs, and also representatives of our, um, the ARA. We identified key areas that we wanted to focus on as part of a therapeutic program. And it's worth just mentioning that um, these practice reviews are generally um, part of a therapeutic program, which uses also the medicine-wise news that we mentioned before, but also things like clinical audits and other um, interventions. We identified as a group that we wanted to focus on optimizing the use of methotrexate, both before and after the initiation of biological medicines for patients. And then uh, we, as a group of us, set about co-designing this particular product with the um, rheumatologists. And the challenges that we faced were many. Um, this was for specialists, they're experts in their field, so what could we possibly tell them that was going to be of use to them that they didn't already know? They're unfamiliar with um, MPS medicine-wise. They, they weren't aware at the, that point in time of the benefits of working with us. And they're unfamiliar with this type of product. They're used to working with data, not necessarily used to receiving um, uh, things containing their own data. And also, to look at what we wanted to look at, it was going to be very complex. It would involve looking at um, the prescribing of authority and non-authority medicines, so we're looking at methotrexate and also at the biological medicines. And we'd be looking at the prescribing of them to follow the patient journey, not only by the specialist, but also by the whole unit. So by GPs as well that are fed into that journey. And we had to get this data right to gain that trust. Um, and whilst um, specialists are a curious bunch, they've often got numerous research projects going on at any one time, we had to make this interesting for them as well. We said that we needed to make this great first impression. Um, as I mentioned, it would be the first time most of them had um, heard of MPS medicine-wise, so we worked really closely with the um, representatives of the ARA to work on the contents. What would we show that was going to gain their interest? The tone, how could we put it together so it would be well-received, and the quality. We had to um, make sure that you know, this was spot-on. And also, it's just worth mentioning, we made use um, at this point with um, our own Deborah as well, who helped with um, just making sure this would be received in the best possible way. And also, the ARA primed their members for us. They sent out emails saying that, um, highlighting it was a collaborative project, and that this practice review would be posted out to them, so they knew they were going to be getting something. Um, the finished product, well, it... It was a complete revamp, actually, of what we normally sent out to GPs to um, make it suitable for this target audience. We made sure up front we um, highlighted in the letter page that um, this was a collaboration with the ARA, and also made sure we introduced ourselves as MPS MedicineWise and highlighted that whilst we weren't specialists, and certainly not in this particular area, we've got a lot of expertise in providing data-type products to health professionals. Um, based on feedback from rheumatologists, we made sure we included a lot of background to all the data that was going to be presented. And we included what we actually did in the report was we um, followed a cohort of patients that the person receiving the data had started on a biological medicine within a two-year period. Then we tracked the use of first-line medicines, including methotrexate, before the patient was initiated on the biological medicine, and also the type of methotrexate that was used. And we also followed um, the use of uh, methotrexate after the patient started the biological medicine. We included data around the choice of biological medicine because we identified that was going to be of interest to rheumatologists. And also 
because it was a gap in practice and also something that was really keenly of interest at this point in time, we included data around the continuing use of corticosteroids in patients that started biological medicines. And this was all interspersed with um, snippets from best practice guidelines to contextualize the data and also um, advice uh, around uh, what um, specialists might want to be communicating to GPs that manage their patients and also things to tell their, patient, um, their patients as well. And we included a lot of comparisons and what was going on in the different states because we advised that would really be of interest to uh, the audience. An evaluation was sent out by the ARA to gauge what the um, response to this was and we got a 17% response rate. And the feedback was really positive. Um, Two-thirds agreed that the data was accurate for them, which really helped to gauge that trust element. And around um, three-quarters agreed that um, the product was useful in helping them reflect on their prescribing, but also helping them compare with their peers. Um, around 80% were very satisfied with the personalization of the data, and similar numbers, and they were satisfied with, with the level of information that we put in there. One of our key outcomes that we want to look at is obviously behavior change. Um, we recognize that um, this is something that um, we're looking to achieve in the long term, and we're probably going to have to sort of maintain this relationship with this particular audience to try to sort of um, gauge whether this is happening, but we are, we're quite confident with this. Um, also, really reassuringly, about 70% of the respondents indicated in the evaluation that they'd like to receive a future practice review on rheumatoid arthritis, and around half indicated they'd be interested in receiving one on a different topic. And really excitingly for us, uh, in terms of continuing the relationship, around half indicated they'd be likely to attend a topic workshop where MPS and other members of the ARA would go through um, the data in a forum-type setting. So the outcomes of this, um, this trial, so the co-design with specialists has been successfully piloted and the practice review has been shown to be useful and acceptable to this new target audience. Um, a mutually beneficial relationship has been set up with the rheumatologists of the ARA and these members are now more familiar with MPS Medicine Wise than before the initiative. And the relationship has helped join the dots between rheumatologists and primary care a little more. And we feel like a lot of the challenges have now been met. What's next? Well, we'll continue to develop and maintain the relationship by uh, presenting this data at the aforementioned ARA state-based meetings. We'll be using the feedback from the evaluation of this product to help us design other products, not only for neurotologists, um, but other specialists. And finally, um, we're already planning future practice reviews for rheumatologists and other specialists. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. That looks like it was a lot of work. Um, you've already answered my question. I was going to ask, um, are you going to roll this out to other um, specialties? Which you yeah, so, um, yeah, whilst we're keen to sort of keep working with uh, rheumatologists, we've done a lot of work in that area now. Um, we're already thinking of different speciality groups, so if you get any suggestions, please right, okay. pull them on. Um, has anyone got any questions? Hi, Angus Thompson. Um, that was great, thank you. Well, I may have missed it. Just out of interest, though, did you have anything, provide any advice or seek opinions on the use of folic acid? Because my experience is a lot of patients on methotrexate who are not receiving doses which are consistent with the evidence and the Cochrane. Yeah, um, and that's certainly one thing that came out in the expert working groups. And um, 
So not only did we highlight in a box, make sure your patients are aware, but one of the things that came out um, from the consumer groups was that consumers were not so much the whether they're taking it or not taking it. Some of them were really confused because the different dosing regimens that were yeah. recommended. So yeah. we had a big box with a practice point in to say, make your patients aware that there are many different um, you know, ways of achieving the guideline recommended dose because this is a cause for confusion. Yeah. And I thought that was yeah. a great way to join those dots. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Leslie Gregory from Department of Health and WI. Um, I can't believe I've not come across this. This is ticking so many boxes for what we're looking at. I noticed WA was included in the data, yes. but from the Department of Health system manager, we've not heard of it. Um, we've got big problems that we suspect um, rheumatologists in particular are advancing to biologicals faster than they may, uh, they should. Um, so I'd be interested to know if any data that you can share with us from WA, who did you engage with? Was it how did it, was it through ARA that it was advertised or? So it's certainly um, promoted to the members um, by the ARA. Um, the data captured all, um, as far as we could capture all, um, specialist rheumatologists. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned, it's, it's based on uh, prescribing data that's captured through Medicare. Right. Um, and you mentioned that it's being spread to other specialities. Um, we've got problems with um, polypharmacy and antipsychotics and um, specialists aren't doing metabolic monitoring, so there's so much that this, um, and having come from the UK where practitioners are used to this kind of um, self-reflecting peer comparison, yeah. it's been a real challenge to get it off the ground in Australia, so well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is Sasha Bennett from New South Wales TAG. I wondered, um, you had 52% who said they didn't want to receive the um, product review feedback again maybe, and how that compared to GP figures, does you get similar figures, and are you going to still send those people um, that said they didn't want it, data, and tr try and change their mind? And I also wondered why you chose the ARA and not RACP, because in some respects you could say you would be more easily able to leap on to other specialties using RACP. Okay, so... Whilst it's, de it's definitely great to gauge that feedback, I think that um, one of the things that we're hopeful for in encouraging those, um, those rheumatologists to actually um, maybe reconsider that position would be to try to get them to come along to the state-based meetings. And we've already had one of those meetings in South Australia. And it's definitely a work in progress because um, as much as the ARA can prime their members that this is coming and we've been involved in it, so it's with them, for them kind of thing. Even at the state-based meetings, you can definitely see the journey and the, um, as we try to explain in more detail what the intent of this product actually is, that um, a lot of the, there's a, a bit of a switch in perception. Um, and in terms of the, the peak body that we, um, we originally aligned with, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the rationale for that was, although we um, were really happy with the, the response we've had with the ARA. Okay, thank you, Andrew. I think we'll thank you. wrap it up there. So next up, we've got um, Kim Devery. Um, she's a course coordinator and head of teaching in palliative care at Flinders University. And she's going to talk to us about an education initiative for clinicians in hospitals um, on end-of-life care. I feel as though I'm a fraud. I'm not going to talk about pills or medications. So, um, But I am going to be talking about something that is 
going to affect us all, which is um, death and dying. And End of Life Essentials is an education initiative, a major one that's come from Flinders University, has been funded by the Australian Government of Health. And of course, we're all ageing and um, two thirds of Australians die, but very old age. So let's hope we all, that happens for us and we live long and healthful lives. 70% of all deaths are expected. And the number of Australians who die each year will double in the next 25 years. A huge, huge impact on our healthcare systems and on our health dollar because 10% of our health dollar is spent in the last 12 months of life. And these are the leading causes of death. So this is what those um, predictable deaths, those expected deaths, these are what people are dying from. Um, long-term chronic debilitating illnesses. Now, I want you to just close your eyes and imagine what a good death might be like for you. Um, you might be at home, you might have hopefully minimal pain and suffering, retaining control of what happens to you, and having the opportunity to discuss what matters to you as a person. And if you are thinking any of those things, you're not alone because the research all points to those things as being really important. But it's important, but many of Australians don't talk about what matters to them. And 82% um, think it's a great idea. 20%, 28% have actually spoken to their family about end of life. But 14% have actually gone to actually do something formally about that in terms of advanced care planning. So patients are poorly prepared for their future and may not even know that the illness that they're living with will end their life. And hospital staff, where 54% of Australians die in acute hospitals, are excellent at prolonging life and treating episodes of pneumonia, for example, but they're not very good at recognising end of life or even providing end of life care. And we know that because there's been a lot of work done with the Australian Commission of Safety and Quality in Healthcare, have done some really important work in this space with a background paper that went into some consensus guidelines. I saw those consensus guidelines and thought they were absolutely ripe for creating some education for doctors, nurses and allied health professionals who work in hospitals, and that's what we've done. Um, they're free, they're evidence-based, and they're peer-reviewed. And the learning topics are really the pillars of what underlies quality care. And it is communication, shared decision-making, recognising end of life, discussing goals of care with patients, not what medical teams think, but what patients want for the rest of the time that they have left. Fantastic teamwork is essential and knowing what to do when suffering happens. One element that I want to report on today, um, or I should say there is going to be some medication in the, um, in the next um, education that we're working on the mo moment, which is a module on chronic complex conditions. And I'm working with Paul Tate, who's our pharmacist, um, who works in a clinical service, and we're going to be looking at rational deprescribing and what that means. So the importance of thinking very carefully about medication and how they're withdrawn. 
Um, but one of the elements in the evaluation, so these are all active clinicians um, who have come to, we've had about 8,000 doctors, nurses and allied health from around the country. But we've asked them, what's the one thing that you can change in your practice after doing the education to, to provide more appropriate end-of-life care? And so we've had over 3,000 responses and the results have surprised me because I thought we would get, oh, well, now I know how to recognise end-of-life. Um, but what, what clinicians are telling us is that they need to really focus on the emotional insight that they possess. They need to listen more effectively to patients and they need to understand the goals and needs and expectations of patients. So in terms of honesty, emotional insight, it's even down to the basics of to be able to use the word dying with a patient. It's, it's ironic that 54% of Australians are dying in institutions where people actually stumble over the word dying and death. And so those honest conversations are actually really hard to have. Awareness of the emotions of the others. These are emotionally heightened times in people's lives and it's fearful also for staff. It's very challenging when you've gone to be a healthcare professional and your main um, aim has been to uh, help people be well to then change your focus to help people die a good death. Um, and awareness of my, my emotion, to self-monitor and manage strong emotions and continue to do my job well as a doctor. Listen to patients, not raise full, false hopes, be truthful. And this is pivotal, and Peter Saul in Newcastle talks about this. He's an ICU specialist. It's really important that we ask, in the event that you're not able to speak for yourself, who would you like to speak for you? And have you spoken to that person? And not be evasive and use the word death or dying. So what does this mean? I mean, I think, for me, I took that national policy and created some education that's gone out nationally. And this is what clinicians are actually saying to us is really important the emotional insight, listening, and, and goals and expectations of patients. And we're absolutely using that concept of emotional insight. We're um, developing further end-of-life essentials, so we've got three more modules coming up um, at the end of this year. Uh, and also, I think it means that behind those skill capabilities of de-prescribing and recognising end-of-life or brilliant teamwork, there are prerequisites of a certain emotional literacy, I think, that enables safe and quality healthcare to flow. So we always need to remember in hospitals, I think, that there's lots of things that can't be fixed, but there's so much more that can be done. And it may not be, um, you know, it may not be um, what we think it is, but it might be listening and not saying anything and listening to patients. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. That was great. Um, I, I, we've got a couple of minutes for questions. I'll just ask one. Um, so have you got any um, feedback from kind of the people that are dying and their families about yes. their experience? 
I mean, from our project, we don't, but there certainly is um, disappointing research about the, the troubles and the complexities in acute hospitals and people don't feel heard and they're not asked what's mattered, what matters to them. So it's, it's, it's fairly bleak. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, hospitals are fantastic at prolonging life and, and really treating acute episodes of illness and getting people back to a certain level of function. Um, having gone through this painful experience um, a few times now, um, I noticed there is a move to talk about death and have that kind of word in the room, but in my experience, we, we didn't want that. No. The people who were dying, they didn't want it either. Yes. Uh, they, they knew, I'm sure. We tried to make them comfortable. And what made me very uncomfortable um, was when a nurse came in and said, well, you do, um, oh, it's my, my husband's uncle who was asleep in the room. Um, you do realize he's dying. And she was so matter of fact about yes, it. Yes. And I know that hearing is one of the last thing that goes. And you know, I just it's wonder really where the evidence is for mm. using terms like that. I'm really pleased you brought that up. So in all of the education, we always say ask permission. So it's not about, and it's usually using terminology and words that family uses, use as well, because we all have a different comfort level. These, these words are culturally bound. So it's not, I mean, I use that as an example, but certainly in our teachings, we say you know, tailor this to the individual, ask permission, would you like to talk about the future, etc. So I absolutely take your point. Thank you. I think we'll leave it there. Yeah, thanks. Okay, next up we've got um, Dr. Johnson George. He's from the Faculty of Pharmacy at Monash University. Um, he's going to be talking about um, interdisciplinary model of care for the management of COPD and um, support, support for um, smoking cessation. Thank you. So the title of my talk is an interdisciplinary model of care in general practice for smoking cessation support and early detection and management of COPD. Bit of background, COPD is currently the fifth leading cause of death in Australia and it uh, puts significant burden in terms of morbidity, poor quality of life and healthcare resource utilization. It is expected that by 2030, it will become the third leading cause of global death. Some of the challenges in management of COPD in Australian primary care is underdiagnosis of the condition, a lot of misdiagnosis, providers not adhering to the guidelines, and consumers not following the treatment instructions or management recommendations. So against this background, we propose to undertake a cluster randomized trial called RADICALS. It stands for Review of Airway Dysfunction and Interdisciplinary Community-Based Care of Adult Long-Term Smokers in Australian General Practice. We hypothesized that uh, the radicals intervention will improve diagnosis of COPD in Australia. It will improve health-related quality of life in people with COPD. It will improve smoking cessation, symptom severity, and lung function. So this is the schema of the radicals model of care with the patient in the middle and the general practitioner coordinating care in the primary care setting involving other healthcare professionals, including pharmacists, physiotherapists, and practice nurse. The model is underpinned by the COPD-X guidelines from the Lung Foundation and the Thoracic Society of Australia and New Zealand. So what we did was um, we identified people with COPD 
using case-finding approaches followed by spirometry. So people above 40 years with a smoking history of 10 or more pack years were invited to come for a screening, and that was using the handheld COPD-6 device. And people who had a FEV1 upon FEV6, which is forced expiratory volume in the first and six seconds, less than 0.75 were asked to go for spirometry. And if the spirometry was suggestive of COPD based on FEV1 upon FVC less than 0.7, and if there was clinical correlation, we, we regarded them as having COPD. And as part of the intervention, we offered them home-based pulmonary rehabilitation. So this was delivered by a specially trained physiotherapist. Uh, it was an eight-week program. There was one home visit, followed by seven weekly phone calls to keep the patient motivated. As part of the intervention, the physiotherapist encouraged the patient to go for aerobic exercises, and also resistance training was provided. Home medicines review was also part of the intervention where a consultant pharmacist visited the patient at their home. They assessed the medication use and knowledge, including the inhaler technique. Smoking cessation support was provided if relevant, and that was based on the quitline recommendations, behavioral counseling, and also pharmacotherapy, both over the counter as well as prescription uh, medications as required. Consumer education was provided and the pharmacist made recommendations to the treating GP for optimizing medicine use and also to make sure that the treatment actually adhered to the COPD-X guidelines. So this is the study flow diagram. We identified 41 clinics. 20 of them were in the usual care group and 21 were in the intervention group. And from these clinics, we identified 272 with COPD. Of these, 115 were in the usual care group and 157 were in the intervention group. Only one-third of the intervention group participants actually received the full intervention. We followed up patients at six months, and uh, I'll talk about those results in the coming slides. So this is the distribution of the clinics in the trial. The majority of participants were, or majority of clinics were in the northeast. There were some in the south and very few in the western region. So 1,050 uh, smokers were invited for the screening program. Um, 245 of them had a prior diagnosis according to the general practice records of COPD. Interestingly, more than one-third of those people actually did not have COPD when we used spirometry to confirm. The remaining 805 people of those 142 actually had COPD which was not diagnosed at the time. In terms of the trial, there were 272 participants, uh, 115 in control and 157 in the intervention group. The groups were pretty similar, although the intervention group participants were slightly older, and also there were fewer smokers in the intervention group. Overall, we found that the severity of COPD in the cohort uh, was actually in the mild uh, range rather than in the moderate to severe range. When we did the intention to treat analysis, we found that St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, which is a disease-specific quality of life measure in COPD, the most commonly used outcome measure, we found that there were improvements in the intervention group in the right direction, but unfortunately, because of the poor uptake of the intervention, none of those actually reached clinical uh, statistical significance. 
So we looked at the 50 people who actually received the full intervention. So this is the pulmonary rehab and also the uh, pharmacist uh, medication review. We found that there was both a clinically and statistically significant improvement in that group. There were strong trends again for CAT scores and also the FEV1 percentage predicted. So what's new? We found that in approximately one in three patients in general practice who are currently being managed for COPD may not actually have the condition. One in six smokers may actually have the condition but they are probably not yet diagnosed. We did a real world evaluation of an interdisciplinary model of care and because of the poor uptake of the intervention, we could not demonstrate an improvement in outcomes. But if we make sure that the intervention is taken up by all the participants, it is very likely that home medicines review and home-based pulmonary rehabilitation can make a big improvement in quality of life of people with COPD. So what are the practice implications? Case-finding approaches are quite easy, and pharmacists can do it, general practitioners can do it. Spirometry should be done in people who are at greater risk, and that can improve the current situation of poor diagnosis of COPD in primary care. There has to be streamlining of interventions once COPD is diagnosed. So that means initiation of interdisciplinary interventions, non-pharmacological interventions should be initiated straight after diagnosis. So in our case, intervention fidelity wasn't great, but that is very important going forward. The Lung Foundation Australia have, they have plenty of resources for health professionals to use to improve COPD outcomes in Australia. Some acknowledgements and some speaker disclosures. Thank you. Thank you, Johnson. Um, I think we've got time for a couple of questions. Hi, Sarah from New South Wales TAG. Um, I just want to, in terms of the consumer education that was provided um, in probably the home medicines review, um, was that just verbal education? Just it was a uh, proper consultant pharmacist visit, lasted for an hour and a half, two hours in most cases, and they went through every medication, but focusing more on the COPD medications. Yeah. And it was just like a normal home medicines review where a lot of consumers, they actually appreciated the input that they never had before. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess in terms of consumer education, often in my experience, you can tell them a lot of things and yeah, often they'll absorb most of it and be really grateful. But um, I guess what I was getting at is um, it would probably be useful to provide written information as a, I guess something they can refer back to should they have forgotten anything that you've said or anything like that. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, it's a great study. Yeah, it's very interesting that a lot of GPs were not actually in favor of having the medication review. It was either the GP not interested or the patient not interested or they think it's relevant for them. And that was the reason for the poor uptake of home medicines review. Exercise, people thought it's too hard and it's always the uh, challenge with the pulmonary rehab to convince people to undertake physical activity. Thanks so much. Um, my name is Chris. I'm from the Pharmaceutical Society. I was interested in the, the point where you didn't have enough um, intervention. Was it just the fact that people didn't want, because of, the, the data's quite good on pulmonary rehab for physio, um, and there's, there's um, triggered payments for the GP in, in, for both of those, well, to refer to both of those. So was it access to physio, access to HMR accredited pharmacists? Did you look into why the interventions weren't um, followed and, and some ways that we can improve that? 
So in the study, we had a specific physiotherapist who was providing the service. It was more getting the GP engaged because we wanted the patient's regular GP to be the one recommending. So there were several steps from the time of diagnosis uh, under the provision of the intervention because we had to get the GP approval, we had to get the patient consent. So sometimes all those things didn't fall into place and um, it could be that the GP was away and there was a delay between um, the patient being diagnosed and their next visit to the practice. But it was not uh, from the pharmacist end or the um, physiotherapist end. It was more either the patient being away or not available or the GP not interested, etc. Okay, great. Well, we, we have trouble getting physios in my area, so I thought that was interesting. Might get NPS to drop I into the I didn't actually GP's put up the slide, but if you go onto the Lung Foundation website, they actually have a map that actually gives the information of where all those services are available. Thank you. Um, so next up, we've got Amy Stashinsky. So Amy is from um, Southwestern um, Sydney Mental Health Service, and um, she's going to be talking about Something that involves card game, which <laughs> I thought true. sounded interesting. Um, so good morning, still morning. Uh, my name's Amy. I'm the Medication Safety and AMS Pharmacist for South Western Sydney LHD Mental Health Service. Um, and this talk is about an initiative that I developed to increase medicines information for our consumers. So first I should tell you just how many consumers we're talking about. Um, South Western Sydney LHD is large. Um, and our consumers span the whole area, so there's literally thousands of them. Um, I only started working for this service in this brand new role um, about a year ago as well. So before I started, there was actually an informal survey undertaken by consumers and it showed they wanted more medicines information, which as we all know is very common. Somehow that survey found its way into an accreditation evidence folder, and so of course a recommendation was then made as a result of this. So my first task in this new job was to address this issue and make sure that that recommendation was met for periodic review. Um, so I had to make sure as many consumers as possible received medicines education on an ongoing basis and I had six months to do it. So I made a game of it, as we said. Um, in a consumer group facilitated by a pharmacist, nurse or occupational therapist, um, the consumers take turns picking a question card and then they have a go at answering the question, and then the group contributes and there's open discussion. So the questions are designed to generate discussion. Um, some are more for participants to consider their own medications and situations. Some are more about general knowledge, um, and some are just fun. So if you look on the middle right there, um, the most common answer to that question, the one about if you could be an animal for a day, what would you be? Most people in the groups I ran said they wanted to be a puppy. I'm not sure what that was about. <laughs> So the group facilitator is there to keep the discussion on track and then sort of give the correct answers if needed. Um, now the answers are actually provided in a facilitator manual, so they're referenced, just in case um, facilitators are not quite sure or need some help with the wording of the answers. Um, they're trained not to give information beyond their knowledge or scope of practice. They're actually trained to note and follow up issues if need be. So um, it's got full instructions for the, for the facilitators and then a copy of the manual is left with them after the initial group is run at each site. So I would go out and train people at all the different sites. Um, and then every time a group is run after that, more facilitators are then trained to run the groups. So that's the snowball effect that we're talking about in the title. Um, so we track attendance, the number of groups and sites running sessions with this form. Um, so there's a master copy in the manual. Um, there's a note section there, which is where they're meant to jot down issues. So often things like a consumer might want very specific information about a medicine, 
or in conversation an adverse effect that they're struggling with may come up and that can get followed up with the medical team. Um, so the attendance form is scanned by the facilitator and emailed to myself, um, along with these feedback forms, which are completed by the consumers after every session, um, and all of the data is maintained in a secure Excel spreadsheet. So in the first few months, this initiative was very successful. Um, we had 142 consumers participate, and a lot of people staff, uh, a lot of staff members trained in actually facilitating. So that was really good. Um, and the feedback from consumers was overwhelmingly positive. So the vast majority learnt something new, um, and they found the sessions useful. Um, and to improve the session, we were actually told there should be more sessions. So um, here are some examples of things that uh, consumers volunteered that they learnt. Um, I particularly like to be in control of your own medicines and to ask more questions. So despite this positive feedback, however, the groups were actually running less and less over time. Um, so I've analysed reasons for this pretty extensively. Given this is a lightning talk and there's not really enough time to talk PDSA cycles in depth, all I'll say for now is that I'm much more established in my role. I know more people, I know our service quite well, and I've learnt a lot from this initial project. Um, so for now, the project is being redesigned, reinvigorated and relaunched on a much bigger, broader and better scale. So I'll be back at the next symposium to update you if you will have me. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. We all look forward to that update. Um, I've just got a question. What, how did you come up with the idea for designing a card game? Is there other approaches been used like this um, I actually, well, I was asked in a previous role to assist in a patient group with occupational therapists, and um, they were just sort of asking questions about general things and medications. And the way that um, they got patients talking in the beginning was with icebreaker questions. So you saw some of the fun questions there. And they kind of had those as random cards. Mm -hmm. And that was just how it sort of triggered for me. And then I just thought I should leave that in there as a bit of a tribute to it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So. Any other questions? Thank you very much, Amy, and really interesting. Um, and I just wanted to ask you a question. Have you changed the title of your sessions based on the feedback that you've received, or is it still called How Well Do You Know Your Medicine? Um, well, this particular project, I'm kind of calling it phase one now, so that's still How Well Do You Know Your Medicines. Um, the new project is actually called What Do You Know? So it's much broader. Okay. So both of them are asking, so not... Because you highlighted that the um, response was that they wanted to know and they were going to ask more questions. Yep. So you, you wouldn't think about how the title might be, what questions would you like to ask us? Because yeah, the I two titles put them as if you're... Um, quizzing them. <laughs> I, it, I was just interested. Yeah, no, and that's true. I think that's kind of how it starts. And then, like I say, the questions are designed to give that open discussion. So yeah. it starts out with them showing us what they know, but then leads to them yeah, letting us know what they want to know. know. And then yeah. it just creates that dialogue, I suppose. And have you reflected on the puppy answer? <laughs> well, given their mental health consumers, I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> You don't think they want people to be kind to them? Maybe, maybe, maybe. We had a couple of people say they wanted to be eagles, so they wanted to fly. But yeah, it was just, I've, it was a really good way to keep people engaged, to have those questions in there, so yeah. had to keep it. One more question. 
Thanks, Amy. Very interesting presentation. Um, I just wanted to find out, I'm from the Federation for Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia, FECA, uh, and we are the national peak body for uh, Australians from a cultural and linguistically diverse background. Yeah. Um, now, uh, it's, it's very interesting that you conducted those sessions. I'm, I'm interested in the diversity of um, uh, the groups uh, you worked with, uh, because uh, people from a current background uh, face unique challenges when it comes to engaging with health information. And I was wondering whether your sessions were taking uh, care of uh, issues around uh, health literacy. Um, and it's not only health literacy for current communities, it's a low English proficiency among other challenges. Yeah. So yeah, just wanted to find out how you went about that. That's a really good question. And that's something that definitely came up the more this session was run. Um, um, and we've sort of, um, well, one of the new things with the new project is it's not just me, I'm getting a team together um, and we're looking at addressing that in a few ways. So um, there will be the potential to use the format with the aid of interpreters. Um, there will be more than one topic for education. So if there is something a particular consumer and their carers or a group of consumers need you could basically run the session just for them. There's a few less questions. Um, there's also, with the new topic, um, or the new project and all the new topics, there is the potential to develop consumer resources that can be given out at the end of the session. So that's something I'm looking to gather as well with part of the team, so. Sorry? Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm getting at. Um, like I said, the next phase is going to be really large, so. I'll see you again in a couple of years to talk about it. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Yeah, there's so much scope there. Um, so the next person is Sarah Din. Um, she's a pharmacist. Uh, she works, she's from New South Wales TAG, and also she works at Manly Hospital. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin. He's going to die 20 years earlier than he should if we don't practice evidence-based medicine. Why? Because he's one of the two in 100 people in Australia who has schizophrenia, and will take lifelong antipsychotic medications. Although the newer antipsychotic medicines um, have helped improve schizophrenia symptoms, they have their downside. They increase the risk of cardiovascular disease, including heart attack and stroke, by promoting weight gain, risk of diabetes, lipid abnormalities, and high blood pressure. This group of signs are collectively known as the metabolic syndrome, and it's one of the major causes of morbidity and mortality in patients with schizophrenia. Despite this, and unfortunately, there are a lot of barriers to the diagnosis and recognition of metabolic syndrome, therefore resulting in the um, metabolic complications being neglected and thereby contributing to the disparity of care um, in the outcomes of mental health patients. Therefore, it's imperative that we proactively monitor patients taking regular antipsychotic medicines so that we can detect these adverse effects early and treat them early. The key parameters to detect metabolic syndrome are waist circumference, blood pressure, fasting lipids, and fasting blood glucose levels. For a person to be defined as having the metabolic syndrome, they must have central obesity, as well as any two of the other parameters. Um, so hospitalisation represents a time where patients might be commenced on long-term antipsychotic medicines, as well as an opportunity for monitoring. In 2014, the National Quality Use of Medicines Indicators for Australian Hospitals were published. Of the five indicators that look at gaps in acute mental health care, um, indicator 7.4 targets the monitoring for the development of metabolic side effects um, in hospitalised patients taking regular antipsychotics. 
To, to assist uptake of the indicators in the acute mental health area, New South Wales TAG, guided by a multidisciplinary steering committee, um, conducted a multi-site study using indicator 7.4. So over the last two years, um, we coordinated a study that investigated how well hospitals were conducting the metabolic monitoring um, for the syndrome, as, and the study also had the additional benefit of training mental health clinicians in quality improvement methodology. 17 clinical services across three Australian states participated in the baseline audit, and the services were from a variety of settings and diverse inpatient populations. The data of 670 patients was collected in total. And after completion and collation of the baseline results, we found that the site's overall adherence with the indicator was poor, with a mean of 14% and a range of 0 to 42%. So this provides you with a graphical representation showing the um, individual site's baseline results to the indicator. Um, as you can see, sites L and N had the best um, results at 42 and 40%, whereas you can see with sites C, I and Q, um, they recorded nil adherence to best practice monitoring. So this graph provides you with a breakdown of the individual parameter results. So you can see here that um, almost all sites performed um, well with the blood pressure monitoring, recorded on average 95% of the time. Whereas on the other hand, the measurement of your waist, blood glucose and the lipids was um, poorly documented and there was um, a wide range in the measurements. Um, it just provided the ranges just above the tabs there. Um, and that is most likely led to the poor results with the overall indicator. And there was no one single pattern that we could identify and the different sites had different issues. We went on and asked the sites what were the barriers to their appropriate monitoring and collated the information. Um, there was a lot more than this, but I've just summarised some of them there. Um, and it provides you with a summary of the system, knowledge, staffing and um, patient-related barriers to metabolic monitoring that we found. Um, and these barriers were also shared with all the sites. Following this, solutions to the issues that were specific to local sites were discussed and included things such as um, appointing and maintaining local champions, um, making equipment available such as tape measures and scales, uh, systematic triage and monitoring um, such as metabolic Sundays, and then on the other hand, in terms of a larger scale, um, other issues that would benefit from a more global approach included things such as standardising the uh, jurisdictional electronic health record uh, for metabolic monitoring and then enabling um, auto population of the results that might be found in various locations in the health record and then also being able to track these results and also looking into how we can utilise the My Health record as well. And just to touch on, I guess, um, some of our learnings from conducting the study and helping coordinate it, um, overall the project highlighted the benefits of undertaking a multi-site study, um, but we did face a few challenges such as, you know, the timing of the different project phases, um, the variation in the resourcing of the different sites, as well as maintaining consistency and enthusiasm across and within the different sites. Um, but importantly, the discussions and feedback that we got were invaluable and, you know, to, to, to thinking up of the local and global solutions and enabling strategies that sites found um, so that we could share it between the steering committee and the 14 different local advisory groups. So in conclusion, um, our baseline audit showed suboptimal monitoring at 17 clinical services. There was a need for both local and global solutions to address these identified gaps. Um, and the, having the multi-site study had the advantage of enabling um, benchmarking of results to improve for quality improvement, uh, developing skills in collaborative and multifaceted improvement strategies, 
and directing the advocacy of global uh, solutions or innovations to drive better patient outcomes. So some of our next steps will be to see whether various interventions um, have improved metabolic monitoring and which of these interventions are more likely to succeed so that Kevin and the rest of the Australian schizophrenia sufferers um, taking antipsychotics don't have a 20-year reduction in their life expectancy. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Is there any questions? Thank you very much for that presentation. Um, I've been looking at running a similar um, uh, audit in WA using the QUM indicators, yeah. um, but it occurred to a few of us that these are you're looking at inpatients who've been admitted for acute episodes. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I used to work for MPS Medicines Wise as a, an educational visiting um, pharmacist, and we we went to see GPs on this very topic. Yeah. My I was wondering whether there's an assumption if patients are admitted for an acute episode, whether the um, people who are looking after them in hospital assume that all this metabolic mon monitoring is being done, should be being done by the patient's GP. I know there are complications that some of these patients don't have GPs, and that's, um, that's another yeah. matter. Um, and and it, going back to what was covered yesterday, could it just be a communication problem about patients' records and somebody's doing this? Um, yeah. For, for short episodes, these are chronic problems. They're not going to show anything. It will show something, but um, it should be something that's looked at over a longer period yeah. of time. They're, they're definitely issues that um, have been raised throughout all the discussions about some of the barriers. So there's a big question about whose responsibility is it to, 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 mo to monitor the metabolic side effects of these medications. And you know, some argue it's the person who starts it that should monitor it. You know, but it's obviously sometimes it's really hard in an acute setting to be able to do that. But um, in saying that, you know, there's other health conditions that we would, you know, if we start a therapy, um, we would monitor that for that. So why is mental health different? Um, and so the approach we're trying to take and to, I guess we had feedback as well is to make it everybody's responsibility and you know if it isn't done as an inpatient for whatever reason the transfer of that information needs to be standardised so that it is transferred because the information might be there or not there but we found that it wasn't there a lot of the time and then hopefully we can improve the monitoring and it is there that it is transferred across to you know, for continuity of care yeah but lots of gaps in this area <laughs> Thanks for a wonderful you know, presentation, and you know it's a very important topic. Nitin Bakul from TGA, mm -hmm. and I'm one of the you know uh, delegates who work on antipsychotics and to yep. approve it. So my question probably you know pardon me if I have not uh, looked into your you know, uh, deficiencies, which are the reason behind this. But is there any role to play for the product information to you know circumvent certain issues like this, or is there something you want to be in the product information so that this can be highlighted more often? Yeah. Uh, something you know we can do on our side. So I know traditionally the um, consumer medicines information leaflets are often in mental health settings. They're not given out because of the nature of how they're laid out and the information in there. So um, a lot of sites, well, I worked in mental health before and there's Queensland's developed quite a good uh, document called Quills and Pills. And so a lot of um, sites will give that out because it's got some you know, uh, really basic information dot pointed. Um, but I think there definitely is room for, I guess, improving the way that the consumer medicines information leaflets are set out and being able to provide that to patients. Um, I know a component of it is to try and empower patients to increase awareness of the metabolic side effects so they can be proactive about doing something as well. 
um, in, in addition to the health professionals, but um, I think there's definitely a role to improve the consumer medicines information. So I know that I've worked across two different sites and both in Victoria and New South Wales and both sites use the Queensland Health Information Leaflets, which has been really helpful, um, but I don't know of any other ones that people are using. So yeah, it's definitely an area that we could address. So I just wanted to ask, do the patients get this information and they are they given sort of counselling or told to take it to their GP or is there sort of interaction between the hospital and their sort of normal care provider? I think at the moment it looks like there isn't. Uh, I'm not sure how often it does happen. Some sites are obviously really good at doing that, but um, I think there's definitely the need for... I think if the information is there, if we can get that... You know, for example, mm. in a discharge summary mm. as a standard section in a, a discharge summary yeah. for mental health patients, um, then that will start the conversation and hopefully keep that transfer of information and therefore, you know, the patient can have the ongoing conversation once they're discharged from hospital. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Sarah. Thanks. So next up, we've got Lisa Kalish Elliott. Um, so Lisa is from the University of South Australia and she's going to be talking about um, the sort of hospital admissions um, lead to antipsychotics being started and possibly continued in older people. Thank, Thank you. you. So we know from international work that antipsychotics are quite commonly started during hospital admissions that um, are not non-psychiatric primary diagnoses. And so some studies from America have shown that antipsychotics are initiated in uh, between around 5% to 9% of non-psychiatric hospital admissions. And for the people who um, start antipsychotics in hospital, again, for a non-psychiatric admission, around a quarter to half of them go home on it. The American studies have shown that predictors of starting an antipsychotic in a non-psychiatric admission and continuing on it when you go home include being older, having delirium um, during the admission, having a diagnosis of dementia, and also living in a nursing home prior to the hospital admission. One of the reasons that this is of concern is that um, antipsychotics cause significant harm in older people. There's a lot of good evidence for this. Um, we know that they increase the risk of hip fracture, pneumonia, stroke, and death in older people. And the problem with this is that, um, particularly for conditions like delirium and dementia, um, we know clearly that they, they increase the risk of harm, but there's really um, limited evidence for the efficacy of antipsychotics for these um, conditions, particularly when they're used long-term. So um, with regards to delirium, no antipsychotics are TGA-approved for the treatment of delirium. And um, if they're used at all, the therapeutic guidelines, so expert consensus says um, if we use them at all, really, for most people, a single dose is enough. So long-term use shouldn't be happening for delirium. In terms of dementia, risperidone is the only antipsychotic that's got TGA approval for use in dementia. We know that other ones are used, but this is the only one that's got TGA approval. Um, and again, risperidone is only approved for use for 12 weeks maximum in dementia because, again, the risks of adverse events um, like stroke in particular far outweigh the benefits associated with longer term use. However, the American studies um, that I cited previously um, suggest that there is frequent and long-term antipsychotic use after non-psychiatric hospital admissions for older people, particularly um, when they have admissions complicated by delirium and dementia. But there's no studies on this topic in Australia, so we don't know how big the problem is here. Um, I worked in a geriatric ward probably 10 years ago now, and it seemed that lots of people were going home on risperidone back then but I don't know what the case is now. I haven't been working in hospital for a long time. And there's no recent studies. So we don't know how often antipsychotics are started in non-psychiatric admissions for older people. We don't know the types of admissions where they're most commonly started. 
And we don't know how many people keep taking them after they leave hospital and how long for. So we did a study to try and answer these questions. And so we, we used um, the Australian Government Department of Veterans Affairs Administrative Claims data to do the study. And what we did was we picked a one-year study period and we included non-psychiatric hospital admissions for everyone who was aged over 65 um, at the start of the year and if they're a gold card holder. We really wanted to focus on the potentially inappropriate antipsychotic use. So we excluded anyone who had ever used an antipsychotic before. Um, and we also, wanted to, we also excluded anyone who'd ever been to hospital for a psychotic illness previously because in all likelihood it was potentially more likely to be appropriate for those patients. We looked at how many admissions were associated with antipsychotic initiation and what the primary and secondary diagnoses in some cases were. And for the people who started an antipsychotic in hospital, we looked at how long they kept on taking it after they left hospital. So over our one-year study period, there were 142,000 non-psychiatric hospital admissions involving around 66,500 people. So some people went to hospital more than once. About half-half male and female, and they were fairly old. The median age was 86 years. And 11% of the people who went to hospital in the year lived in an aged care facility before they went to hospital. The good news was that for the 142,000 non-psychiatric hospital admissions, antipsychotics were initiated in only 921 of them, so it wasn't very common. Again, the gender distribution where the antipsychotics were initiated was about 50-50. The people who started an antipsychotic in hospital tended to be a bit older. They were, had a median age of 89 years, and more of them lived in an aged care facility before they came to hospital. We also looked at the types of antipsychotics that were started during the hospital admissions, um, and it was most commonly haloperidol, so in 43% of cases haloperidol was initiated, um, followed by risperidone in 35% of cases, which is probably not all that surprising considering the PBS prescribing restrictions. Uh, when we looked at the primary diagnoses for the admissions where antipsychotics were started, it was most commonly um, diseases of the circulatory system, cancers, fractures, um, and in 6% of cases, the admissions had a primary di diagnosis of delirium, and in another 6% of cases, they had a primary diagnosis of dementia. Now, we know from previous work that we've done in the data that um, delirium and dementia are not all that often coded as a primary diagnosis for the admission. They're much more commonly coded as a secondary diagnosis. So for those two um, diagnoses in particular, we looked at um, how many admissions had either a primary or a secondary diagnosis of delirium or dementia. So basically, did the patient have delirium or dementia during the admission? And we found that in 55% of the hospital admissions, there was a diagnosis of delirium or dementia recorded. When we looked at the duration of use, we found that long-term use was common. So at one year follow-up, half of the people were continuing to use the antipsychotic, which again is of concern because these are older people, um, most commonly using them for delirium or dementia, where short-term use is only what's, what should happen if, if they're used at all. So in conclusion, I think it was good that um, antipsychotic initiation was so uncommon in our study population, only point. 6% was it? 921 admissions had an antipsychotic started. But for the people who did start one, they tended to stay on it for a long time, which is not good news because the risks associated with the long-term use um, are definitely not offset by the benefits for conditions like delirium and dementia. So I think we really do need to ensure that um, appropriate duration of antipsychotic use following non-psychiatric hospital admission is clearly communicated at the time of discharge. So I'd like to thank DVA um, who supplied the data used for this study and also NHMRC, ARC who are funding my research fellowship, which this work was conducted as part of. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, we've got time for a couple of questions. 
Sorry, my name is Chris. I'm a clinical pharmacology registrar, but recently a medical registrar and probably responsible for a couple of those people. Um, my question is, so in this country we have a lack of aged psych wards. Um, I think in Melbourne we've got two. Um, and so there's a bit of a problem of people who perhaps do have um, uh, psychiatric comorbidities or even possibly a psychiatric primary um, diagnosis presenting and, and being admitted under general medical units. And I was just wondering whether perhaps some of those people were being captured in this data. I don't think they would have been. My feeling from working with the data is that even if they were admitted to a general medical ward, if their primary reason for being in hospital was a psychiatric condition, it would be coded as such. And at least it would be somewhere in the list of diagnoses. So, for example, if their admission was complicated and they stayed for a long time and psychiatric diagnosis kind of got bumped down further down the list, it would still be there in the secondaries. And so we excluded any admissions if it was a secondary diagnosis as well. Sorry, that wasn't Correct. clear. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably why the number was so low, I think, the 0.6%. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I've just got a comment. Um, so it just goes to show really how important the discharge um, summary is. And we've, um, today, in Australian Prescriber, we've got an article all about the sort of transitions of care, sort of going in and out of hospital. And, you know, it's a particularly sort of vulnerable time mm. for patients. I was going to add that point. I'm a rural GP. And um, certainly the, the um, clinical handover is the most risky time for mm. patients. This is a great example of how you're adding medication at a time when people, as we know, who transition from home or RACF into hospital and back again, just the act of moving triggers delirium. Yeah. And it's reversible, but by the time they get back to a nursing home, sometimes it's quite convenient to have somebody sedated, particularly when they, yeah. they're given tea at five o'clock in the afternoon and, and woken up at six in the morning and expected yeah. to sleep for such a long time. So it's very convenient sometimes to continue that medication but it's critical that the GP is involved in the discharge planning and gets to know about these things straight away and have the confidence to de-prescribe uh, from what's initiated in, the, in, in very good hospitals by very good doctors. <laughs> yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah. Okay, Thank thanks, you. Lisa. Um, next up, we've got Angus Thompson from the University of Tasmania. Um, he's going to be talking about denosumab. Okay, Over thanks, Fiona. Thanks, everybody. Um, so, yeah, I've got a presentation based on some of the evidence around denosumab and a little pilot study that we've done in southern Tasmania looking at how denosumab is used in practice. So, for those who are not familiar with denosumab, it's a monoclonal antibody. It inhibits um, bone resorption. It's available as two products in Australia. The focus of my presentation today is the second one of those. It's um, Prolia. I'm not going to talk about Exgeva. It accounts for the vast majority, at least 95% of all denosumab use, the Prolia formulation. So Prolia has become very popular both with patients and prescribers. Um, key features of Prolia which probably drive that are the fact that it's given by a subcutaneous injection once every six months, usually in general practice. Um, bisphosphonates are obviously well-established drugs, been around for much longer. But they have some features which probably reflect why Prolia has become so popular. Whilst Resedronate, Alendronate are available orally, convenient, um, given either typically weekly or monthly, they're obviously subject to some quite complex dosing requirements for two reasons. One, to reduce the risk of esophageal irritation, and secondly, because their oral bioavailability is very poor. And for those reasons, we know that... Um, Adherence and persistence with those bisphosphonates is pretty poor, and that inevitably would threaten to compromise the clinical outcomes that we'd like to see. 
If you look at the data taken from the PBS statistics, um, around 450,000 scripts were written for Prolia, sorry, were dispensed for Prolia um, in the year to June 2017. And you'll notice there has been a really significant shift in practice over recent years. So this, what I've done here is I've looked at the script numbers and adjusted those to calculate based upon assumed 100% um, adherence, the number of patients receiving these drugs. So you can actually see that we've now got probably around a third of a million Australians receiving um, Prolia, whilst the number of people collectively on the two main bisphosphonates is only about 100,000. And it's, it's that trend, the divergence, is quite dramatic. So we're spending £120 million to government on Prolia. So denosumab is supported by quite reasonable evidence in terms of the impact on fractures. We know that it reduces both vertebral and non-vertebral fractures. And there is evidence that it also impacts favorably the surrogate marker of bone mineral density more than the bisphosphonate. But it's not superior. If we have, you know, look at the actual numbers needed to treat, to reduce fractures, denosumab and bisphosphonates compare, they're very similar. One of the key things when you look at the trials with these drugs, uh, so with Prolia and in fact the bisphosphonates, is trials have invariably mandated that people are supplemented. Um, so for example here, this is taken from the Freedom Trial, which is the pivotal trial which you know, set the world alight with denosumab. But other trials like the Adamo trial done in gents with prostate and cancer and other trials have all done that too. Okay. So supplementation has been a concurrent thing alongside denosumab in those trials. So based upon this and some anecdotal observations um, of my own, we decided to conduct an audit of patients in southern Tasmania. So we use home medicine review data because obviously that collects both prescribed and over-the-counter medication, and bearing in mind that calcium and vitamin D are not prescribable, well, they're prescribable, but they're not um, prescription-only products. So in the year that we, the data we collected, there was 207 patients, and 31 of those were prescribed Prolia. That sample probably reflects the, the patients from about 40 GPs, okay, from about 15 to 20 practices across southern Tasmania, both within Greater Hobart, and some regional areas, including Bruny Island, the Huon Valley, and so on. So what we found amongst those 31 patients receiving Prolia was that supplementation was um, significantly less than occurred in the trials, particularly calcium supplementation. So we've recorded there the data prescribed. We technically don't really mean prescribed. We mean on the referral from the GP, so I guess endorsed or recommended by the GP. But obviously there were some patients who were taking supplements off of their own back um, and it wasn't recorded on the medication profile. But you can see that around 75% of patients are not having calcium and around 25% are not having vitamin D. And in a significant proportion, the vast majority of patients, there was an element of that supplementation which was still not optimal. It was either inadequate based upon an assessment of dietary intake. In some cases, the calcium intake may have been higher than was necessary because of good dietary intake. And in some cases, it may have been a formulation that was not optimal, given that around 50% of these patients are using a PPI, as most people use a calcium carbonate-based supplement, the absorption from that is probably um, compromised even more. So we're now planning a larger study um, using a larger data set of HMR data um, to try and get a better picture. And also, we want to collect in that 
evidence as to whether people have had their vitamin D levels checked. Because if a clinician has identified that somebody is repleting vitamin D, it may be legitimate not to supplement them. But in the meantime, what, do we, what can we do? So I think there's a number of interventions that we can consider at a whole variety of parts of the patient's journey, um, but also in terms of regulation. We've seen a huge shift with the bisphosphonates over recent years, where obviously their use is, using, is falling, but the majority of people today on bisphosphonates are using the combination products. So they've actually got a pack which provides them with what they need, or a product which may meet their need, and it's subsidised by the PBS. We don't have the same with Prolia, and that may be inherently problematic because of the nature of a six-monthly subcut injection. But is there a reason why, for example, the manufacturer could not actually support best practice by, for example, including a voucher to enable people to receive a product. And for me, one of the most important things would be that that's flexible, because we know that people who receive things like Actinel Combi D, Fosamax Combi, the product they get may not necessarily be tailored to their needs um, in terms of the dose and formulation. Is there room for the PBS to exert some influence on the manufacturer to say, we're spending a lot of money on your product, you have an obligation to actually provide some incentive to actually give us a reassurance that we're going to use it in an evidence-based way. Should we consider the PBS subsidy of calcium and vitamin D for people on Prolia, just as we defectively do for people on oral bisphosphonates? It's a little bit anomalous that you know, the reality is for patients to take calcium and vitamin D over-the-counter, particularly some of the more expensive formulations, they spend more per month on their calcium and vitamin D than a concession patient actually does on their monthly script for their Fosamax, for example. So it's, there's all sorts of anomalies here. If there were concerns about a blowout in costs, yes, obviously, the authority system's not perfect, but some checks and balances could be put in place to help restrain that. Another option would be for prescribers to consider having prompts within their system, clinical systems. Um, I've had experience of that as a prescribing advisor in the UK to prompt those discussions. Pharmacists at the point of dispensing engaging with patients to have a conversation about using supplements and where a more in-depth discussion is required there's maybe a place for professional services. The CMI makes reference to using supplements in three different places but based upon the evidence we've got that message is not getting across to patients. Do we need to do more? So in conclusion, I would suggest that our current use of Prolia is not consistent with the evidence. Um, we are spending a vast amount of money on this drug. Can we afford to carry on as we are, possibly spending this money without having the faith that we're actually going to deliver the clinical outcomes that the trials showed? Thank you. Thank you, Angus. Um, maybe just one question. Hi, thanks for that presentation. Very interesting. Um, I'm a co-author on one of the posters downstairs in which we list a number of drugs to avoid um, that, yes. <laughs> that were uh, identified as such by a, an independent uh, bulletin in France um, uh, run by, yeah, by doctors and pharmacists. And denosumab was one of the drugs to avoid because of lack of evidence of an advantage in terms of fracture reduction over the bisphosphonates and a shared adverse event profile in, in terms of the osteonecrosis of the jaw and um, yeah so and and yeah the atypical fractures and then some additional ones that are related to its immune system effect so I'm wondering you've highlighted the um, vitamin D and calcium problem 
do you see a wider problem in terms of the way the initiations have taken off? It's certainly a drug that we, we've leapt to using based upon concerns, legitimate concerns, um, about osteonecrosis, atypical fractures with bisphosphonates, but I sense that's been blown out of proportion because they're actually relatively rare. And the, the fact that when this drug first came on the market and we didn't have any evidence that this drug caused the same, that was simply because it was new. And as time's gone by, we're realising that it may be associated with some similar problems. So yeah, I, I should... I share some of your concerns, and particularly also the fact that this drug doesn't have a probably do, probably doesn't have a legacy effect. So we're going to have to keep people on this drug probably forever. Whereas with bisphosphonates, we can um, often give a drug holiday. Company would be happy about that, wouldn't they? <laughs> okay, thanks, Angus. Next up, we've got um, Jianyun Wu from MPS Medicine Wise. And he's going to be talking about an asthma intervention program to improve um, adherence to preventive medications. Thanks. Um, in 2014, NPS Medicine Wise launched a national intervention program on, on exploring inhaled medicines using asthma and asthma control. And the program included key messages about the relationship between the asthma control and the medication adherence. We then investigated the feasibility of measuring the impact of program on patients uh, adherence on the prevent medicines using 10% PBS data. Uh, you may be aware of that the PBS data lacks information on the dosage instructions, uh, frequency of administrations, and intended durations, but it does provide information on data, data of prescribing, data of dispensing, and the number of repeats associated with the prescription and the dispensing sequence. So this means as long as the patient has one dispensing record, the total number of scripts associated with that prescription is known. So, and this information will be very useful uh, when calculating the adherence measurements. So, based on those information, we then designed a, a retrospective study, cohort study, to evaluate the change in patient adherence to asthma prevent medicines prescribed in um, 2013, 14, 14, 15, and 15, 16 financial years, uh, which corresponded to one year before, one year during, and one year after the intervention. Uh, we define the cohort um, with probable persistent asthma um, by excluding the patients had no script or only one script uh, dispensed in each of the study period. And then we also restrict our study um, to the patients um, had more to the patients um, uh, who had been prescribed a single ICS monotherapy or single ICS larva combination product and those who were alive through all the periods. Unlike other, unlike other drugs with the number of tablets in the data, um, the quantity of the inhaler medicines always won. So in the end, we, on, we only include the patients on medicines likely to have a 30-day supply per script. Um, to be more precise, those on, we only include the patients on the fructixone and fructixone larva combination products. Um, based on clinical guidelines, uh, recommended dosage and uh, drug formulations. And then we used a modified version of proportional days covered as the measure of adherence. Uh, we defined the prescription period as the total intended duration for an episode of treatment between the prescribing date and the theoretical end date, depending on the number of repeats issued and the number of uh, supply days in a prescription. The modified PDC is measured adherence to each treatment after a prescription was um, issued, and then 
uh, rather than from the first dispensing date in the original PDC calculation. So if there are multiple prescriptions prescribed in one study period, then the theoretical end date of the last prescription was regarded as the cutoff time point. So the adequate adherence was defined as the PDC greater than or equal to 80%. However, unfortunately, we did not find improvement in adherence. The overall adherence was low, and only about 27% of patients uh, received adequate adherence over time uh, in each period. And uh, for patients on a fructic zone, um, and the adequate so patients on the fructixone is more were less likely to achieve adequate adherence over time, and but there is no significance found for the patients on the fructixone combination therapy. And for all the um, for all the periods, uh, patients on the fructixone combination therapy were more likely to, to achieve adequate adherence compared to the patients on the monotherapy. Uh, adequate adherence is also associated with male and the concessional patient and increasing age and the frequent doctor visits and the increasing number of medication and other medication being prescribed. So PBS data only contains the medication dispensing record and does not contain data on diagnosis or disease state. So patients uh, with non with a non asthma condition such as COPD could not be separated. And uh, only patients using fructixone and the fructixone larva combination products were selected to ensure the consistent definition of the adherence intervals. Uh, the measure of the adherence only related to the dispenser scripts and uh, where the patients actually took the medications or where they used the device properly could not be determined. Um, although 10% PPS data has its limitations, but we still think it can be used to measure the asthma adherence to some extent. As we understand, the information such as the total number of repeats associated with the prescriptions or prescription dispensing sequence is only available in the 10% PBS data. It's not available in any other PBS data request. Due to the usefulness of this information in calculating asthma adherence, we think it should be included in a standard request form. And the poor patient adherence to asthma prevent medicines is well documented in Australia and internationally. Future programs should continue to address the importance of adherence to improve patients' health outcomes and to reduce unnecessary health care costs. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. Time for a couple of questions. When you were calculating your adherence, so they had the 30-day supply yes. per script, um, did you give people a bit of a grace period? So oh, yes, I gave them five days okay. at the buffer period. Right, because I was wondering if maybe that was why you, it was so low, but it was just low. Yeah. And the other question I had was, um, how could you tell the frequency of doctor visits in the PBS data? So we just, we just basically count the original script. Be very quick. I was wondering, did you look at um, change in uh, one particular inhaled corticosteroid to another, and uh, also change in devices? Uh, uh, not change in device, but we look at the step-down approach. But if so, in this one, so in each period, some of patients is maybe have more than one asthma medications, so they change down from ICS to ICS larva combinations, but. Because the study is to 
connect the relationship to the interventions. So we keep it simple rather than to look at their step on approach to within the one. Have you had it to the new elite device? Because a lot of patients I think recently have changed. Changed it no, we didn't look at. We only look at inhaler medications. I'm I'm just interested because I've looked at very similar sort of data um, before I left the UK, and we looked specifically at practices um, and their how many um, inhaled corticosteroids they were prescribing to their patients, and we could tally that almost exactly with um, so low prescribers of uh, inhaled corticosteroids tallied with high prescribers of. Um, short-acting beta-2 agonists. Um, is there any way of comparing that data? And we actually, um, in those practices, we actually tied it to hospital admissions for um, acute asthma exacerbations. So, yeah, because, um, because the NPS programs normally target the GPs, and in the PBS 10%, we actually can tell whether the particular um, prescriber is a GP or other professionals, but for this study, we didn't uh, separate those two, but it's potentially yes. Did you do any sensitivity analysis for sort of wider grace periods was one, and then the other one was, did you look at sort of, I suppose, less strict definitions of adherence, you know, um, a number of missed months per year, uh, and to see whether that changed? So we look at whether... We give uh, them, so in this study, we, in the final report, we give them like the five days buffer period, but we try to look at zero or one, two, three, but the result is similar. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Fred. I think that concludes the session. I just want to thank um, all of the presenters. You did a really good job, um, some really encouraging work, and hopefully in two years' time, you'll come back and tell us a bit more. Okay, thanks.